welcome to the Minute 66 podcast. On today's episode, we're joined by Uruguayan football expert Alvaro Perez to discuss the 1924 and 1928 Summer Olympic football tournaments. We discuss their credentials as legitimate World Cup tournaments and why FIFA are so reluctant to acknowledge them as part of FIFA World Cup history. We also reflect on Luis Suarez's emotional return to Nacional and touch on various controversial and maligned club tournaments throughout football history. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me, Alvaro. Thank you for having me. Okay, so today, uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is the 1924 and the 1928 Summer Olympic football tournaments. Yes. Which may sound random at first point. Um But essentially, what we're looking at with these two tournaments is there is there's a unique set of circumstances with these Summer Olympic Games that means that they really ought to be. And sometimes when you speak to FIFA, they are accepted as genuine lineage of the FIFA World Cup and that Uruguay, two times winners, are actually four times winners. Yes. So... Could you start to explain what these circumstances are which make these Summer Olympic Games legitimate World Cups in actuality? Yeah, absolutely. So to get started, actually, if I were to maybe go a little bit forward into the timeline, um, I noticed through a little bit of research that I had to do for this, that one of the reasons I think why there's like such a level of confusion internationally is because there's actually quite contradictory versions of this history told even by FIFA, like official FIFA publications. One will say yes, another will say no. So the whole thing is really up there and you know, you'll have different continents have a different version of history. So in South America, for example, they, they name Uruguay as four-time world champions constantly, the media, uh, famous historians. It's like, it's like beyond dispute. But then all of a sudden, like, you know, I think we mentioned, uh, you know, in our pre-video talk, um, you know, you, you speak to a few people in England about this and then it's like, it's baffling. What, what do you mean four world titles? No, they just won two World Cups, right? So, well, the whole thing really starts in um, 1924 and 1928. Now, FIFA had been involved with the IOC prior to that. They actually partly organized, they helped organize the 1920 Olympic tournament, which was a completely amateur tournament. Um, the thing was 1924 and 28 actually represented FIFA, or I would say Jules Rimet, the first FIFA president, his uh, aim to professionalize football. He wanted all of the athletes to do so. So from what I understand, and I, I, I got lucky enough to talk to the actual historian who uh, who wrote a lot of this stuff. His name is Pierre Rigi. He's French, Uruguayan, actually lives in France right now. He's a university professor. And essentially what he explained was that, um, you know, the French Football Federation, they had decided... Like, the, the mandate of French football was professionalism. So at this point in Europe, you really start to see a split between countries that want football to be professionalized and certain countries uh, that don't want it. They want them to remain amateur. So they want only amateur athletes. They don't want professional athletes participating in the Olympic Games. So the 1924 Olympics happen in Amsterdam, of course. And funny enough, FIFA has absolute control over 1924 and 1928. And interestingly, uh, 1924 is also organized, co-organized by the French Football Federation, which funny enough, the president of both was Jules Rimet. So he was really, really, I mean, really, really deeply involved with the Olympic movement, let's just say. Um, So the thing was, the the only way that Rimet could actually um, 
force the professionals or allow them to play was actually to change the term for professionalism. So instead of actually calling the tournaments professional, he calls them open tournaments. And this is something I had no idea about. I was actually really surprised. And Pierre Rigi starts explaining, like, you know, when you hear about like the US Open and all these, that that's what it actually represents. So initially the US Open, which is an older tournament than, you know, the World Cup, obviously, when they said open, it was actually to say, yes, professional professionals can now participate. So Remay actually uses that, which is amazing. And through this little play of on words, he allows or he opens the doors for non-amateurs to participate. Obviously, a lot of, uh, of these football associations were upset, particularly the uh, British home nations. So we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I had no idea that during this time, there was this massive um, sort of like a, I don't know, a, a pull for power between the four British nations who, let's just say they valued the home tournament. What, you know, Maybe you can explain a little more. I'm, I'm actually not too familiar with this. I know it's a it's a very old championship with you know Scotland, England, Wales. Is that that correct, right? And Northern Ireland, yes. And Northern Ireland as well. And I'm, I'm assuming this happened system in 19th century. I'm assuming. Yes, it's okay. a very very old tournament. So from from my understanding, um, this you know this was seen by the British nations as like the premier tournament in football, and FIFA comes along, and well, this kind of becomes like a little bit of a challenge to that you know, status essentially as like the primal, the main, the world champion. So essentially 1924 becomes a professional tournament. And the thing was, it's not just, uh, you know, them sort of announcing this in a small way. No, all of the advertisements, like all the media about this, not just in France, but even all over Europe, except for actually notably in the UK, they started announcing this as the first legitimate world championship, a professional world championship. And the thing was um, to kind of, you know, cut a lot of the story because it, you know, it really goes on and on and on about, you know, there's countries fighting for this against it. Eventually what happens is that FIFA, they actually take exactly the conditions, everything from the letter of the law, everything from 1924 and 1928. And what they do is they actually um, basically apply it to the 1930 World Cup identically. So really in terms of like logistics, there's no difference at all between the rules of 1924, 1928, 1930 from everything from designation of referees to players. Like it's literally like the same copy book is used. And that could be one argument to say, okay, well, technically those are the same tournaments, but there's a lot of things that happen in the middle of that. And FIFA basically... I would say, I don't know if I could say they made the mistake. I think now they would see that. And I can actually tell you why, because there was an incident about a year ago where uh, I, I, got, I got actually news that FIFA executives, very new FIFA executives to this, they were basically facepalming. Like, I can't believe FIFA signed this 100 years ago. Oh my God, it's official, guys. We can't we can't deny this. I'll tell you about that in a sec, because I'm going to go with this chronologically. But really, between 24 and 28, multiple accounts of FIFA naming Uruguay world champion, two-time world champion, like officially. So it's very, very interesting in that sense. And eventually, you know, ironically, nearly 100 years later, Uruguay would use these documents in uh, in an argument, in, in an appeal to keep their stars. Uh, because I don't know if you knew about this recently, that was challenged around roughly 2021 in an official way for the first time ever, actually. So it was a very interesting event that happened about a year ago that I, I can go into as well soon. Hmm. So, okay. So anyways, to, to continue. So, cause you know, I'm trying to like really summarize this, this history here. Um, well, actually, okay. If I were to say actually the next part of this. Okay. So I think that the next part logically would be talking about the contradictory history. Where did this all come about? So, okay. I don't know if you've ever had this feeling, Richard. So maybe you can uh, remember this. Have you ever felt that there's like a bit of a tension between the IOC and FIFA 
regarding the most recent editions of the Olympic Games? Like, I don't know if you ever heard anything or read anything about that. I had genuinely never heard anything about them okay. having any sort of dispute until I spoke to you last time. Okay. You were saying that there's actually this incredibly long-running feud between the two organizations dating yeah. back a century. Yeah, it's so almost this like it's all news to me. <laughs> well, it, it's, yeah, to be honest, a lot of this was news to me. Like, it wasn't until I actually had to do a little bit of research uh, and had a, like an actual, you know, this historian explain this to me. Um, so, a lot of this is not like you know publicly known. Um, although I'm trying to change that, I'm actually making a website about this, but that's just neither here nor there. I'll mention that a little bit later. So, essentially, what happened was, um, I don't know, it almost seems inevitable, doesn't it? Right? The IOC and FIFA they're hand in hand working together. You know, you have 1920, 1924, 28. Those are very special tournaments. Eventually, what happens is FIFA starts to limit the IOCs, um, I guess they're pulling power with players. So what happens is the 1932 Olympics, there was no football. FIFA actually like does not allow it to happen. 36, they do allow it, but they only allow like the B teams, they call them, like a lot of amateur players, semi-professional players. So essentially they want to distinguish between the Olympics and the World Cup as like, you know, we have the premier tournament now. It's not part of the Olympic Games. It used to be too bad, right? So over the years, and this is something very interesting that I had no idea about. So this, this author, this historian, Pierre Rigi, what he did was he actually published like five or six books that I, you know, I, I had no idea about this. One of them is actually called 36 Lies of Jules Rimet, a critique of the influential book, Wonderful History of the World Cup. And I'm like, what? what? A book about a, another book that I've never heard of? So it turns out 1954, um, Jules Rimet writes the first revisionist history of football book. And it's really, really interesting because he goes on in detail about how FIFA had barely anything to do with the IOC and how the first tournament's actually 1930. Uh, saying that 1924 and 20 count as kind of like amateur, sorry, that was a little bit later, the amateur titles. So people always always try to, since that moment, split themselves from the IOC. Now, my understanding, when and I learned this from a conversation with a historian, is that essentially FIFA doesn't like that the Olympic Committee takes or basically has this go every four years to potentially take their most, you know, equitable players, basically, right? Like, they don't want Messi participating in the Olympic Games, potentially getting injured, really to profit the IOC, because FIFA's not seeing a dime of that money. So it's a really, really since then, there's, there's this massive, massive tension between the IOC and FIFA because the IOC wants football. They want football to be like the, the premier thing, like the main attraction of the Olympic Games. It's almost as if the Olympics loses a lot without football. Mm. So in, in a way, basically, um, since, since that moment, since that book is released, what happens is FIFA starts to create other books that basically reflect that initial uh, you know, book created by uh, Jules Rimet. Now, the interesting thing about this is that um, you know, through the, the book that that other guy wrote, the historian, Pierre Rigi, he essentially figures out that, yeah, he actually has an insane amount of evidence saying the actual absolute contrary, that Rimet has, there's like a lot of information about him being biased against the IOC, apparently in the 40s, like he had a massive rift with him, like arguments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's like absolute documents that say Rimet was the president of the French Football Federation. He was the president of the French Olympic Committee. It's like, like it's like there's no way you can deny that the president so we're talking about some of the biggest most important executives in fifa history were some of the founders of the ioc so we're talking like these, this guy called pierre coubertin there's a lot henry delaunay who's the actual um he actually is the founder of the ioc was a massive massive like fifa executive so anyways the whole thing has to do with and i'm really summarizing this but there's so much evidence that basically he put forward and another historian came out called marcio trevisan of brazil 
he also has a lot, and he's very, very prominent in Brazil. So what I'm getting to is this. This is really, really where it gets interesting, I think. Since the 1980s, um, Joseph Blatter himself starts to actually, not, and I'm, he actually said very carefully, he didn't even say commission. He asked for a few British historians to start writing the history of FIFA. And he said, mention specifically that in 1924, 28 Olympic tournaments are amateur world titles. So that was the way they were going to get over this. Like, okay, you know what? Yeah, yeah, they're world titles, but amateur technically, amateur. So at this point, here's where it gets really, really interesting. And almost, I think, um, considering modern sensibilities, I think if you talk about this now, even FIFA will go, ooh, okay. So basically what happens is this, Marcio Trevisan and Pierre Rigi accuse FIFA of like a European bias. So there's like, there's like not one South American historian at this table. So you guys are basically writing the history of football for Europe, guys, at this point. So now it becomes that, uh-oh, like an actual, you know, there, there could be a, a bit of an accusation. I'm just saying, you know, it's, it's sort of a sensitive topic, let's just say, if you're going to say, you know, we're going to cover this history from one point of view only. So basically there's like a bit of a riff at this point. And because of that in South America, um, there's just a completely different history in that sense. They just see it totally different. And for them, like the World Cup starts in 1924. And the thing is, that I actually printed, I mean, I found like 40 like uh, documentations from newspapers from countries all over the world calling Uruguay three-time world champion, four-time world champion. And yeah, I have the whole list here. So if, <laughs> if you want, although I don't know if it'll be interesting, I can go through it in detail, but it's, it's really, really, I mean, if you look at the actual evidence, it's like, you know, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's hard to refute. Like I've seen a lot of the news clips on the YouTube channel. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I'll put a link on. Yeah. that youtube channel so, so the youtube video so people can see it that this is you've got newspaper clippings yeah it's um, you know tournament advertising posters all this kind of stuff all clearly saying this is a this is a world cup yeah no for sure and uruguay, the, won it and uruguay world champions yeah oh yeah yeah when when even in the one of the congresses after 24 when they actually said like uruguay arrived as world champions in montevideo and then after 28 uruguay is right as two-time world champions yeah. there's just a lot i mean i mean for example uh you know the, the referee um of uh, the 1928 funny enough the 1930 world cup final uh, I, I can't pronounce his name correctly really tall man john langenis i think he's he's belgian if you ever look at a photo of the 1928 and 1930 um captains when they're meeting you're going to see a massive lanky referee he looks like a like a vampire almost very very particular features very interesting guy really he was the best referee in the world at the time and yeah when he arrived in montevideo he actually yeah, wrote in his book it's like uruguay are awaiting a third world title so what i'm trying to say with this and what pierre Rigi is saying is that this was like common knowledge at mm. the time like in 1925 genoa from yeah genoa from italy they invite nacional of uruguay who had like i don't know eight starters from the uruguay team so they actually says genoa versus world champions uruguay in the posters so i mean we're talking like yeah it's just there's a lot of this basically right and i don't know this all this was key in the biggest moment and the biggest moment was last year so this is where it gets very, I think, um, it's essentially the first time that FIFA mentions this ever, basically. So what happens is, um, okay, FIFA, through a Puma employee, asked Uruguay in, in a leaked email, this was very, very strange because none of this was official, to please remove two of the stars. We don't consider them stars. Like, we don't consider them world titles. And to so clarify that for the audience... Uruguay yeah. have had four stars yeah. in their shirt since 1991, I think he said before. Yeah, there's actually, I, I've seen documents so in 30 years of history, at least, of FIFA allowing Uruguay to display the fact that they have four world titles. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's a lot of different uh, administrations, of course, you know, ever since Blatter left, like a whole new group of people came in. And, and that's what he explained to me as well, historian, like a lot of these guys, he says, they're like businessmen, like they, they couldn't even tell you who the 1962 World Cup winner was. It's not like us, you know, we were passionate about football. He's like a lot of these guys, they, you know, the guy who sent that email had, had no idea. So, yeah, the, the, the one thing I think, um, you know, kind of going back to the, the original email, Uruguay kind of lost its mind. And why did they lose their mind? I mean, just kind of listen to the, the the branding, how this would change. I mean, there is a difference in being like a two-time World Cup winner. And all of a sudden, if you're a four-time world champion, it's like, it kind of places you, you know, it's, it's you know, I don't know. Have, have you ever had this in Europe? I don't know if this is a thing, but in South America, this is huge now clubs are actually scrambling like they're they're going around history and they're trying to officialize these tiny little international cups and in order to basically add to their trophy case so they're actually asking fifa uefa comebol now i don't know if this is happening in europe but in south america it's happening a lot so okay i'll give you an example i know that real madrid has tried to officialize i think it was the latin cup which was like the precursor to the uefa cup so basically they're saying like oh no we technically won like four more uefa cups because if you officialize the latin cup from the 50s that would technically be so there's a lot of teams doing this because i think they see the value in branding you know there, there's a reason why people go to river plate and Boca at first when they started watching football yeah. you know what i mean they, they do stand out these clubs because they have these prestigious international titles you know what i mean Oh, do you know, I can only speak for England really with this, but in England, it's it's almost the reverse in England, where mm. there's this obsession towards devaluing anything that's not the league or the European oh, Cup. Really? So like the League Cup or the FA Cup, I suppose, too, right? Yeah, like the, just so many things. I mean, it is, it's so much stuff gets disregarded now, you know, like, like the old Fairs Cup, which was the precursor right. to UEFA Cup. Right, um, right. Even stuff like that now, people in England don't really want to acknowledge that that's well, that's the Europa League. So you've been a Europa right. League winner in essence, right? Um, and I don't know if that's a very English thing because there's always been that disdain for the World Club Championship as well. Um, where I will see it's common in England to see League Cup winners' medals placed above World Champion medals. Yeah, yeah. Because there's this narrative in England, and maybe that just dates back to the fact that football originated in England and there was this yeah. mentality for decades that, well, of course, we're better than everyone else at football. I don't know if there's still some element of that that persists to this day where, because there's always been an obsession with disregarding the World Club Championship in, in England. Yeah. There's always been this thing of a lot of the old Liverpool players, they go on TV even now when they talk about how they lost to Sao Paulo because mm. they all just oh, got drunk. Oh, Sao Paulo, yeah, the, the, with Lugano. Yeah, yeah they're like, oh, we went out and we got drunk till four o'clock in the morning and that's why we lost. And no one right. in England challenges them, says, well, you do realise Zika was in that Sao Paulo team. Yeah. So, it's, right. you, you know, you, it was half of the Brazilian national team you were playing against. So maybe you lost the game because you were playing against a really good team. But right. there's, there's always been that element in England. Um, but no. Yeah, I can see that as well in Scotland, you know, with the, the 67 final is particularly bitter because they... You know, you, you know about the '67 final between Celtic and Racing. Uh, it's like it's like an absolute, you know, one of the most ridiculously infamous, violent, like th- two, three leg, three three match clashes ever I've ever heard of. Ever, it's insane. Oh, there was I'd not heard about that one specifically. Oh no, there's a few in that area. I mean, the um, the SG Dantes Manchester United one from the following years, infamous. Yes, as well. Uh, yeah, for the same reason for it, the like the excessive violence and stuff yeah. that was in the games. Oh yeah, oh yeah. 
you know, the, the 60s coincided a lot with Argentinian teams winning because you, you, you didn't have this at all in 71 with Nacional or 66 Peñarol Real Madrid. None of this is really was. Yeah. The Racing 67 and then from that Estudiantes, which were notoriously, um, you know, violent team. But in South America. So you're saying that in England. So in South America, it's totally the opposite. So I'll give you an example. Palmeiras, massive club in Sao Paulo. To, till today, they are begging FIFA organizing meetings that they want to recognize it's like the 1956 so apparently in 56 or 57 there was like a, a club world championship in, in Sao Paulo no in, in, in Rio like literally not, like 100,000 people in Maracana 130,000 per game massive you had the champions from massive European countries like full teams from South America and Palmeiras won it and they consider themselves the first club world champions because they think that was like a totally legitimate event. It was it was marketed like at the World Cup and FIFA doesn't accept it. So, I mean, it's it's just, you know, they want to add to their to their thing. So what I'm saying is with Uruguay, this had like a massive, massive effect and people kind of lost their minds in Uruguay all over the place. But with, one of the things FIFA didn't really know is that Uruguay had kind of been preparing for this for like the last 90 years. So FIFA, they they actually asked, and I talked to Pierre Rigi, like we did a Zoom thing, all these FIFA executives, and they were like jaw drop that we had like rooms of evidence it was like here you guys go fifa seal there you go this and apparently i argue with some of you was like oh my god all right like they were so frustrated, like on the screen, like, are you serious? You have, oh my God. So FIFA's in a really weird position because of this, because they don't really want to recognize it, but they really can't not recognize it. And so much so that, I mean, this is probably the last nail in the coffin, really. The FIFA museum has three sections that were recently added where they flat out actually just say, yeah, 24 and 28 are like, the, they are the precursors to the World Cup. And just to give you an example, um, I don't know if you know this, but from 1924 until 1954, you're Uruguay never lost at a FIFA event. And in the museum, they don't consider the, the, the winning streak from 1930 to 50. They consider all the way to 24. They actually mm -hmm. pull it back to 24. This is only as, as of this year. Like this happened really recently. Um, they they have like, you know, I don't know, Scarone and like, Scarone is a three-time world champion, like on top of them. So it's really, really interesting that, you know, like I said, FIFA, in one sense, they would love not to be associated with the IOC ever. And basically act as if the, their world cup was like the beginning of football history but in another sense um yeah it, it turns out that a lot there was just a lot written and it, essentially yeah it was not very difficult to argue when FIFA actually you know came knocking at one point so the fact that FIFA retracted like officially retracted Uruguay presented their uniform and they're like yeah yeah four stars go ahead we accept them they're legitimate we recognize them it's like it's almost like I don't know at this point like what else can you say like FIFA officially retracted their request to remove the, the stars. So I don't know, uh, you know, it's, it's at this point, it's just about posting the evidence. And that's why I wanted to make a website. Well, I did make the website actually, but just for that reason, basically. Yeah. So it's, it's basically, it's political reasons because they don't like the Olympics and it's business reasons because they just, they want to own all the intellectual property that's related to the World Cup. There's another reason as well, and it's it's a little it's a little odd that Pierre he told me this one. Um, so he basically said that apparently it's it's also there's a human reason behind it, maybe a little bit of pride cultural. So he said that apparently, I didn't know this, since Infantino came aboard, apparently for the first time since the 60s, the FIFA executives had become predominantly British. And because of that, they had like an invested in like a vested interest in 
basically promoting the history that started from 1980 by Bladder. And there's actually three publications. One of them is called The Official History of the World Cup, which came out about five years ago, very, very new. And that book is the first example explicitly stating 24 and 28 are amateur world titles. So one of the ideas, and I don't know if this is absolutely accurate, maybe it's just a pure Rigi, he was just, and I don't want to speak for him, but this is what he told me. Um, one of the ideas was, was basically that idea of pride is that, you know, it, it looks different seeing that football history or at least the world championship history started with something, a winner from outside the continent. Like it just sounds, I don't know, a little more, uh, instead of being Uruguay, 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 Italy, now it's Uruguay, Italy, Italy, Uruguay. Oh, and then Europe takes over, then Brazil. It's like, it's just a little bit more. Now, like I said, I don't know, I'm not, you know, when he said this to me, I didn't ask him for like a reference or citations at that point. Mm. That was just a view, but I don't know. It just, it seems like maybe that's a point of contention since the 1920s, essentially is, is kind of like, where is the soul of football heading? Right. I think that was the, the sort of the, yeah, like that's the, the issue of contention, right? It's like, is it a professional thing? Is it a, this thing is an amateur. And then, you know, you have a, even more of a split when Uruguay is announced as a 1930 world cup host, a lot of, a lot of European countries are like, we're not having anything to do it. We're not, we're not traveling all the way there. We, we don't accept this as, as a, as a legitimate world championship. So like I said, like the, the history of football is actually much more fractured than I ever imagined. And I got that impression from Pierre Riki basically, basically saying that there's no centralization. There was an attempt that was contradicted immediately by South American historians, but there's no centralized um, football history, except for at this point, FIFA finally admitting the four stars going, okay, we'll back off. Go ahead, basically. <laughs> well, it is, yeah, it's, it's a crazy story, and it really is, but um, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully now again, we'll see that this will finally get recognized everywhere, and these attempts at rewriting history aren't going to wear. Uh, aren't going to take it's hope. like i said it's weird because like people's people's got to go like yeah we'll, we'll recognize but we don't want to talk about it it's very strange so i don't know it's uh, it seems like they're just gonna that's just their policy they're just gonna continue going yeah keep using it and we'll just not mention it <laughs> basically <laughs> at this point i just want to add as well it was flamenco of course yes oh so you're talking about flamenco never mind who defeated Sorry. liverpool in the oh yeah. yes so apologies to flamenco fans who may be listening but I'm, that was the 80s. I'm, not, I'm not trying to uh rewrite history and say that was 81, 81 final. It was, yeah. This yeah. was Graeme Souness particularly likes telling this story on British television. Oh, really? Oh, that's about how they were out drinking in Tokyo till five in the morning. Wow, you're kidding. Wow, because like, you know, you know why? Because when you look at Brazilian media, no, they talk about that game like they destroyed. Like they, like their view of that game is like we humiliated Liverpool. It's like, oh, 40 years later, they're still, they're still reeling 40 years later from that loss. They have no idea. that <laughs> like, whatever about that game. I've seen the footage from that yeah. game and it was, it was, pretty comprehensive well, but it's it, it's there's always this thing in english culture where you try and they don't like giving credit to anybody else the amount of european cups english teams have lost because the referees were oh, paid God. off and everybody knows really? the referees were paid off it's really really i mean really a couple a of those stories probably are legit because you think of the, like are you thinking of the 96 semi-final with germany like was, was there a referee incident in that match as well or just think all, all kinds of mainly club wise, I'm talking about. Oh, okay, okay. It's like okay. it's like um, Juventus has lost to Leeds. So when Juventus beat Leeds, I think mm. there's a well known story there that there was allegedly a referee paid off. Oh, uh, Man United's defeat to Inter Milan in the '69 semi final mm. were the holders. That's largely accredited to referees being paid off. Really? Okay. Allegedly. Now. Allegedly. 
guess. Yeah, I mean, whether there was, I mean, Italian clubs and the Italian national team, historically, I mean, obviously Italy's first World Cup win, that's I've watched documentaries on how Mussolini engineered that whole tournament. And, yeah, no, it's, it's ridiculous. And guns yeah. pointed at referees and stuff. So you don't know how much of it's legitimate. Some I don't want to laugh, but it's just so absurd. I mean, because, yeah, no, I've, I've, like, they went all out, you know, in that yes. one for sure. Yes. <laughs> if there's documentaries on it, if there's film, full movies about it, then you go, okay, there's probably some where there's smoke. Yes, yes absolutely. No, there's a movie made on it, but yes. Yes. <laughs> But yes, you can go back years with these things. No, you know, I, I do find it fascinating in a sense. Um, you know, a, a new book came out recently on the history of the intercontinental cup, and they were saying that the 1960 intercontinental, intercontinental cup between Real Madrid and Peñarol was such a massive event in Europe, it had like 150 million, which is like, it was like unprecedented, like for an audience. And they said since then, the intercontinental cup. I, I speak to Spaniards all the time. They're like, dude, it's like the big, it's like Champions League, slightly lower. I'm like, really? I'm like, wow. Since then, they. It's just, it's incredible. It's, it's become like a cultural thing. I don't know what it is. It almost seems like how the country is exposed to it in a sense. Mm. Or, or actually, you know, my theory is actually whatever tournament is won by a big team gets to promote it as the most important, um, you know, event. There's, okay, in 19, let me just give you a story here that I find fascinating. It kind of explains everything here. The 1960 Copa Libertadores semifinal was between Peñarol of Uruguay against San Lorenzo of Argentina. They played two legs and both legs ended up in a draw. So the third leg was going to, third leg, third match was going to be in, in Argentina in Buenos Aires. But you know, it actually pays off San Lorenzo's like executives. They, they just bribed them. And they said, listen, put the match back in, in Montevideo. We'll just play it there. And the thing was, until today, some so it's really amazing. They always go like, we did not have a sense of the value that that trophy was going to give. It was just the inaugural tournament. It might as well like been like the uh, the conference league. You know what I mean? Like this year happening. It's like, oh yeah, it's a new thing. Whatever. So they didn't know that forty years later, if you have even one of those, you're considered like an all time legendary like elite club in South America forever. Vélez, Vélez, like their, you know, medium team in Argentina, their whole thing is based on winning that one Intercontinental Cup. Like you go to the club and it's like right there, the Intercontinental from 1993 or 94. It's incredible. And it's like the, their marketing, the whole thing is like, yes, we are a club world champion. And it sets them apart immediately from all the clubs in Argentina. So they can sound in. So until today, they're like, oh my God, what a regret. Like we did not know of the marketing possibilities, whatever, that this cup was going to represent. So it's really, really interesting. And I think in a way, I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing that's happened throughout football history, to be honest. Like, I'm sure no one would have seen the value of the Ferris Cup, for example, you know, going into the 2000s, let's just imagine, right? Well, possibly. You know. possibly. I mean, it's, so, the last, yeah. it's the last trophy that Newcastle United won, I think. Oh, the which United won? That... Newcastle oh. United. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, okay. Because they've had some pretty good teams over the course of the last 30 years, but that's the last thing they ever won. Wow, wow, wow. And they, I think they won the Inter-Toto Cup, okay. which doesn't have any credibility at all, but who knows? I know, I know. Maybe they'll go back and go, well, it was a kind of a competition, you know? So, yeah, so. I remember Vieira won it once, and they barely celebrated when they won it, so I don't know, I didn't see this. Very yeah, much. I mean, it was a it was a trophy to qualify for Europe, so I mean, it's... Oh, that's all it was, okay. It was, all it, was. It, it was it was a back route to qualify to get into the UEFA Cup, if you'd, not, <laughs> if you'd finished, like, 10th in the Premier League. Really? League. That's incredible. So now you like the main... And you have the to... Start, it started wow. in the first week in June. Okay. So it was nobody wanted to get into that Inter-Turto qualifying spot because it basically <laughs> meant you didn't get a summer. 
you had to play all through the summer to qualify for the UEFA. That's Cup. incredible. So if you won um, that card, you're, you're close yeah, hiding. You they don't you, even want to show that card. It, it was an absolute, it was a death sentence because you had to basically play for 12 months and play like 70 games and you could get beat in the finals. So there wasn't even a guarantee you'd have anything <laughs> to show for playing through the whole summer. But uh, just, you know, that just seems like a, just such a satire of anyways, <laughs> in general. So I'm surprised it went that long, actually. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a few weird ones in English history as well. I mean, then the Anglo-Italian Cup—that's no one's ever tried to lay a claim to that being anything credible. But um... you know, it's funny in, in South America. This is like I'm not—I can show you. Like, there's videos of like, massive debates, like 30 journalists in Argentina, and essentially all the clubs in Argentina are trying to scoop up as many international tournaments. So before the 1940s, um, Uruguay and Argentina actually shared like these cup winners' cups. Yeah, like imagine as if England and Scotland had like their own, like you know, the, the league champions fought every year, like a community shield, and it was treated seriously. But they're trying to put them like on the level of Copa Libertadores, but Bo- like Boca and River actually claiming, and it, you know, it's just, it's just like, come on, guys, you beat like you know a small Uruguay club like six <laughs> nil, you know, and you're claiming it as a Copa Libertadores. I mean, just saying, it's it's pretty, and you know, even our you know the fans actually are, are fighting hilarious that River is just trying to grind all these like cups from the 1910s. <laughs> Which it's you know it's pretty comical, <laughs> but you know it's just the way it is. Yeah, they just want to distinguish themselves from each other constantly. You know, so. <laughs> so there you go. Right. So the last thing I wanted to have a little chat about was um, while you're on Luis Suarez returning to Uruguay with um, with Nacional. Yeah. Um, how big of a news story is this in Uruguay? Oh, wow. It was historic, actually. So uh, I don't know if, you know, news made it to Europe too much about this, but it was, uh, you know, Luis Suarez originally was supposed to sign. So he, he goes off and apparently makes his calls to River Plate. And the agreement was, or at least a verbal agreement, was that if Luis Suarez joined River, and if River qualified to the quarterfinals of the Copa Libertadores, he would sign for the club, you know, for sure. So he doesn't because River gets eliminated. So the thing is, he goes on TV and he has this really odd interview that he basically says, you know, I'm really hurt that Nacional didn't come for me. It's like, you know, I, I know that, you know, I don't know. They know that I'm close with them. They're my home club, et cetera. But, you know, he's like a player likes to be loved it was a very strange interview like even the stuff he was saying like a player loves to be loved and cuddled it was like okay so so what happens is national they don't take this lightly they go all out and their fans establish this movement online on twitter where essentially um well it turns out that 50 million tweets over 15 countries or many countries um actually post essentially suarez to national and the profile picture would have a photo of lee suarez photoshop wearing a national jersey so apparently yeah like this was you know this worked because even people in the backgrounds are actually saying no no guys like he let go of big money he was supposed to go to qatar the mls like he was actually moved by this and yeah, he came to Uruguay and it was just massive. Like this, you know, he shows up to Montevideo and it's just this massive caravan of cars, thousands of people. Um, you know, it became like a mass, you know, there was reports from all over the world. So it was really, really big. And and, and even recently, there's a, there's a really big Spanish show called Chiringuito. It's like a, oh, I don't, I don't know if there's anything in England uh, related to this. It's kind of like a, I, it's, with the sun. It's even you know, like, known in England. Oh, no way. Okay. So, you know, it's very <laughs> like. Main, I don't know his name, the main guy on the channel. Yeah. With the yeah, white, yeah. the white, yeah, 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 with white uh, hair, because he's, yeah, yeah. he's such a character. You don't know what he's yeah. saying because he's obviously speaking Spanish. But even English people, you're kind of transfixed when he's when the clips come up on you on Twitter and things. Oh, really? 
No, because I know it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's in South those meltdowns about real oh. stuff when he's, oh, no, oh, no, 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 screaming and stuff. It's, yeah, it's, it's gripping. <laughs> if you don't know what you're saying. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen a lot of reporters call it like oh it's like trash tv i think they're very talented actually what they do like to be honest like i'll watch it and it's like i can't help but chuckle and it's funny and it's very passionate so you know it's very it's very just you know controversy controversy anger emotion you know you're like guys really are you really this upset over football <laughs> like you get to the point of this way but you know okay but um yeah he did this huge thing about it. like it was i think it was yesterday or two days ago and they did a whole thing about like wow like you never see this anymore like this is historic and they're playing like really really like, tearful music in the background it was really cheesy but it just showing that even yeah it reached the biggest show in spain they did like a whole 10 minute segment on it and yeah there was you know showing suarez playing and you know i mean uh, the footage has come out obviously there's one stadium he played on recently very humble stadium liverpool liverpool that's the actual pronunciation my, my, my father always gets upset at me it's like it's not liverpool it's liverpool because that's the spanish pronunciation and you know the, the dressing room is kind of you know it's not 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 in the best condition it's kind of like you know <laughs> homemade it's it's you know not great so people were putting like you know memes like look Suarez a cap new <laughs> Suarez of this now right but yeah, even Suarez came out he's like no you know I'm proud to play here like you know it's just it's just you know no it's like it doesn't like it is what it is you know what I mean and he's not so I don't know you don't see it often so in, in a way in a very my cynical cynical football heart was melted a little bit I'll say it was a very I don't think I'll see anything like it for ever maybe ever again so this is this would be like Messi choosing Newell's over going to like Borussia Dortmund yeah. like it's just it's a very wow okay you did that okay wow so it is it is a very big thing and a lot of people um minus the Argentinian reporters as I mentioned earlier who were very upset mm-hmm. um because this would be like essentially choosing Celtic over uh, uh Tottenham basically and imagine you're like you're still a good player you chose Celtic because you're Scottish and Celtic's my club and that's it, or Rangers. So it, essentially that's pretty much what happened, right? Suarez joined us, you know. So, you know, yeah, it's it's really, uh, I don't know, it's a very romantic tale. And I don't know, but for, you know, the football fans in us, I think, I don't know. It's, it's you know, it's I think it, it turned a few heads naturally because of the fact that it's just such a rare occurrence generally. It is because Uruguayan players tend to not find the way back to Uruguay late in career, do they? Because it's not like it's all the Brazilian and the Argentine players do, but the they Uruguayan do. league, it's... I mean, it's, it's a small league because it's, yeah. it's a small country. It's a bit like in yeah. Europe, it's Serbian players tend not to go back to Serbia these days. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. Croat players don't go back to Croatia usually because because they're such small countries. It's like they said, it's, there's a few big clubs at the top and then towards the bottom of the league, you're playing teams who are, there's a few hundred people there. Because yeah. you know, yes, yes, they're the smaller countries and they don't have lots of money for, for football. Of course. Of course, yeah, it's as a thing. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, they actually, a lot of them do come back, actually. It's just, they're just, I don't know. Um, the thing is, they, they, they just want to make that last bit of money. That's what it is, right? Yeah. So they, they are offered much more, if let's just say, because you do have the players, you know, Gargano came back to Peñarol and he did really well, I mean, considering. But, you know, like you'll have, Cavani would have probably chosen a Flamengo, let's just say. He'd make way more. I mean, it's, it's incomparable. You would have made, the, you can't even, you know, like, if I were to show you how much the squad values are, you know, when Nacional about a year ago, they went to the, like the quarterfinals of the Libertadores and it was ridiculous. It was like Nacional was worth like 20 million and every other club was like 120, 130, 140 million. Like you did not compare. Mm-hmm. The thing is um, with players in Uruguay, there's, you know, the thing is they're raised with this idea as children and, and it's very hard to lose. Maybe it's just, I don't know the history of it, but 
you know, in Uruguay, they, they're raised constantly with people telling them tales of Nacional Peñarol, Uruguay, these feats, these historical things, how like legendary. So the players actually do come back, I find, and, and often actually forego like what even that, that final payday mm. because there is that attachment historically. It's, it's a very family thing. Like, for example, Diego Forlan, you know, he came back to Peñarol about five years ago. Mm. It's not just him playing for the club that raised him or his childhood club. No, his father's a legend in the club. His grand, like, it's like there's such a history in his family with it. It's like very ingrained with it Suarez is the same thing you know he's been with Nacional since he was a little kid so you know it's just you know there, there's there is a big connection with these clubs and I think nostalgia wise you know I mean you, you talk to any Peñarol family even any, anyone in their 30s you, you say 1982 the Libertadores will start tearing up I mean it's a very very powerful thing for them Peñarol and Nacional like you know still maintain you know what it is honestly it's like Celtic and Rangers like yeah you know I know Rangers went to the Europa Cup uh, final last year they lost to Frankfurt this year but I actually, I follow Scottish football pretty closely because I like hearts a lot of, I follow hearts since like 2002, essentially, like for a long, like very few people know this. And I noticed how they treat Southern Rangers and the Scottish media as if they're like these international giant clubs. Mm. And it's like, I don't know, to give you an example, I once had a, a homestay student, Brazilian kid living in my house years ago. I was, I was like high school, he was in high school too, at my parents' house. And once I just told him like, oh, you know, watch the, the old firm derby. He's like, what's this? You know, Celtic Rangers. I don't know what these words mean. Like he actually he was like, he's like, not only that, he was like, I don't think anyone in Brazil has ever heard of these clubs. And I was like, dude, you know, Celtic and Rangers are like inside on Satanta sports at least. It's like, it's like Real Madrid, Man U, Celtic Rangers. Like that's how they put it. It's like the biggest clubs ever. So the fact that he was like, I, I've never heard, I don't know what these words mean. What is Celtic blew me away. And it kind of shows, I don't know, from different perspectives in a sense, I think, you know, in terms of uh, I think what is probably, bigger, what isn't. I think it's probably a generational thing as well because. Silicon Rangers were still, I mean, even in the 90s, they yeah. were still, they could attract big players, you know. Yeah. I mean, Hendrik Larson was up there with Celtic, yeah. uh, Paul Gascoigne and Brian Loudrop, guys like that were uh, Rangers. Yeah. Uh, it's just obviously, it's just, I mean, same obviously with the Uruguayan clubs. It's just yeah. the money has just continued to get more and more yeah. and more lopsided. It's a TV revenue. It's 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 yeah. incomparable. Like it's, it's on a daily basis, they're destroying you. Yeah, because even into like I said, even early, even the late nineties, if you couldn't play for Man United or Arsenal or Liverpool, you went to Celtic or Rangers. They were like the next best option for you, wow. because you're playing in front of fifty, sixty thousand people every week. You can yeah. the trophies. You're playing in the Champions League most yeah. years. Yes. So it was seen as like a step up from, you know, Tottenham or Everton or Leeds, sort of the teams who were around that era, around the next step up in that era. Yes. Um, but now it's just, you know, you see it's not uncommon now you see players leaving Celtic and Rangers to go play in the English Championship. Oh, yeah. There's absolutely. so much more money to be made even there. Yeah. Um, which is sad, you know. It's it seems to be a theme that crops up on my podcast on this podcast most times. Yeah, it's funny. I I think financial disparity is just hurting so much of the history of the game because there's so many clubs yes. and leagues that just they're just clinging on now. They're not competing. No, and Scotland, I mean, Scotland. Scotland's another example. Unfortunately, it's I mean, like I think world class players for in the 60s and the 70s. Oh, yeah, yeah. And stuff. Yeah. And you look at it now and it's just because the money's not there anymore. It's I think I think what hurt Scotland a lot actually in the mid-2000s was losing that second Champions League spot. Like the like you know they they used to have, you know, you come in first, you made it automatically. Now I think you come in first, you have to go to a playoff. You don't even get automatic group. 
And second, I believe the second place, I believe, went to the final playoff, which was, you know, you'd see Celtic and Rangers, you know, even one year hearts like could have, they came in second, they split the old firm in 06, they could have made it. So, and I think, I don't know, I think at that time there was more of a, okay, well, there's a pretty good chance we're getting champions. Like, so we can go to Celtic and Rangers, but now it's like, even if you win the SPL, you know, you might not make it. I've seen Celtic win the SPL and get massacred in the Champions League playoffs. So, you know, I don't know. It's just, uh, it is sad. I know. I, I agree. But funny enough, you say that because one of the uh, appeals of Nacional Empeñador is, especially now because it's, you know, gaining so much more. There's so much more money coming in yearly now, way more. It's like dramatic every year. So it's growing a lot. And the thing is, yeah, because of that, Nacional Empeñador, I'm not going to say, because it's not as easy. That's the one thing I've noticed that Celtic and Rangers, if you see them now, it's like, it's like they're playing amateur teams. It's like, there's no, like the, the other team might not even have a chance on goal on the other end, but for the full match, like St. Mirren, Dundee, whatever. But Nacional Pena actually do struggle, but still they are expected to make, to, to grab one of those two spots. So players actually would prefer, funny enough, now it's kind of like a 90s thing for Celtic and Rangers. They would prefer to play for like Nacional Pena than like, you know, I don't know, a, a club that would not have made the Libertadores, for example. So it's it's very interesting how, I don't know, I've always noticed that sort of Uruguay, Argentina, Scotland, England, like there's a little bit of a, so just some similarities I find, especially with the big two and, you know, that idea basically, right? Like that, that relationship between the, the two countries. <laughs> so uh, anyways, oh, sorry, just to finish out with Suarez. Yeah, so uh, yeah, uh, Suarez, uh, funny enough, he, he didn't start for the first few matches and that meant Nacional didn't qualify. They were eliminated in the Copa Sudamericana. They lost 4-0 in aggregate, but honestly, that was a really strange series. They could have won 5-0 in the first game. They, they missed incredible chances. And then the second game, they're just destroyed. So it was very, I don't know, very, very strange. So now all Suarez has is the Uruguayan League and the new Copa Uruguay. It's brand new competition. First time, like, you know, ever that they've invented this massive nationwide, which is hilarious because Uruguay is only 3 million people, essentially meaning that Uruguay is only Montevideo mostly for all of its history uh, for the competitions. So, you know, I think the main excitement now is that Suarez is going to get game time to prepare for the World Cup. And the big match, I think, I think is September 4th is Nacional Peñarol that's going to be absolutely massive because Peñarol is like, I don't know, it's, they're not going to go easy. Like there actually might be, I don't know, it's going to be a very emotional Clásico. I mean, you know, Uruguayans are very, very, uh, I don't know, with, with their pride in this sense, especially Nacional doing such a big deal where like so much media coverage and all this stuff. Like Peñarol beating Nacional for this title would be celebrated like a Copa Libertadores. It would be like a nationwide celebration. It would be massive. So I think this is going to be a very particular one, uh, especially mm-hmm. considering Suarez is there. If he scores, it would be insanity. So yeah, I think it's going to be great. Um, it's going to be one of the most watched, I think, internationally. Um, you know, probably in history for Uruguayan derbies. Although, honestly, Adam, I'm kind of surprised. In, in South America, funny enough, they actually show the Uruguay derby free, uh, continentally wide, which was kind of blew me away. So I don't know. I had no idea that probably Nacional Pena was considered like this like cultural match that they just show. So mm. in South America, it actually gets a lot of coverage. But who knows? Maybe this time because of Suarez, it might get a few, a couple of more viewers, you know, elsewhere. Hopefully, we'll see. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Alvaro. No worries, Richard. Thank you so much for having me again. It's been great. It's been a great chat. I've really enjoyed it. Likewise.